Well, this summer we've been asking the question, how do we love our neighbors well? And of course, we're asking it broadly, where we live, where we work, what does it look like to love our neighbors well? But we also are asking it very specifically as we move into this neighborhood, what does it look like for us to to move in and love our neighbors well. And so we started by looking at a number of Old Testament passages and tonight we'll begin looking at uh, some of the New Testament. John 1.14, we heard it in the English Standard. Here's how it's translated in the message. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes. The one-of-a-kind glory, like father, like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. The word is John's name for Jesus, the son of God. John begins his gospel, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So Jesus is God, and God in some sense exists beyond us, above us, removed from us. There we talk about his transcendence, that there's a sense that he exists in another reality apart from us and all of that, but God loves us. And so he moves towards us. He becomes flesh. He moves into our reality. He moves into the neighborhood. And that's what love does. Love moves. Love moves towards the beloved. Love becomes vulnerable. The king leaves the safety of the palace to enter the kingdom of the people. Well, what might it look like for us to become flesh and blood and move into our neighborhood? Well, I was thinking about that as I was driving to a a, a birthday party last night of a friend. And I noticed that this was one of the first social engagements I've been to and that a big part of me didn't feel very comfortable. Um, We have taken COVID very seriously. We have some health issues in our home. Uh, And for good reasons, I think we've been very cautious and we've hardly gone out at all. And I think all of that is a good thing. But I'm also noticing, and I'm wondering if you're noticing it all in you, kind of a COVID entropy kind of an energy that pulls us inward, that focuses on our own self-protection, all the good things we had to do during COVID to not get hurt, to not get infected, all that good stuff. But I'm wondering if there's a lingering COVID entropy that is pulling us inward to withdraw, to self-protect. When love moves. Love always leaves safety towards the object of the beloved. 
And, and you might think, well, you know, I've just realized I can do this online. Um, and I'd say you can do a lot of loving online and a lot of good things have happened online. And I thank God for the ways we've connected online. But Christianity is ultimately an embodied religion. The word became flesh. God didn't just send apostles and prophets to leave his written word. He did that. That's a beautiful thing. But that wasn't enough. He sent his son to become flesh. And that word embodied is a little abstract, but that's what it means. It takes place in the body. We, we are a faith that is embodied. It cannot all be done on a phone. There is a way in which we have to gather together and be in flesh and blood. And that's so risky because bodies are so vulnerable. Some of you, you may know that Sandy's uh, father uh, passed away Tuesday evening. And uh, we thought we had a little longer, but uh, turned out that we did not. I got there five minutes after he passed away. And uh, Norm was a, kind of a larger than life guy. Big man, powerful man. He was a vice president of a major tire company. And I remember when I met him 40 years ago, I flew out to California and I was in college. And, and uh, Norm was kind of old school. And he felt like if he could break your hand when he shook it, some of you have had uh, been boyfriends like this, that that, that, uh, that would kind of drive you away from his daughter. And he put the crush on my hand. And of course, I faked that it didn't bother me, but I think I uh, was wincing internally. And, and, he said, and we took a jog, and, and he said, now he was the vice president of B.F. Goodrich at that time, and he said, can you keep my daughter in the manner to which she is accustomed? And I was a sophomore at Northwestern, and I had about a dollar and a half in my bank account, and I said, yes, sir, I can do that. I can do that. <laughs> and then promptly went into the ministry, and uh, that didn't, didn't, <laughs> didn't work too well. But... Norm was so big and so strong, and, and then he got sick. And for about the past eight years, he's been slowly dying. And, and uh, I don't know if, maybe this is because I'm a minister. I've maybe been around death more than some of you, but I'm always struck when I'm with a dead body. How quickly life goes away. They're not there. And how beautiful and how broken the body is. I just sat there and patted him and prayed and I just, just thought this is a beautiful and broken 87-year-old body and he's not there. He's not there. And I thought of that as I thought of this passage and how Jesus took on a body, a body that breaks, a body that dies. It's just so vulnerable, that's so raw, but I think that's what love, love does. It's vulnerable, it's risky, it takes on pain. I, I don't, you know, I don't know what that means for our church really, for for your personal life, even, even for me. But I, I just want us to think about this. 
post-COVID entropy, this post-COVID pull towards self-protection that I must always watch it or you could kill me. I really should stay in. There's a place for that, I get it. But let's not forget the movement of the word becoming flesh. The Christian life is always one of risk and sacrifice. And you could even say Christ moved into a world infected by the virus of sin knowing that he would die from it. Neighboring is an embodied practice. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That Greek word means to pitch a tent, uh, to set up camp. The idea was he came to be with us for, for a while, to stay. Um, there's a graveyard in the front of the Abbey of Gethsemane, the isolated Kentucky monastery where Thomas Merton wrote some very good books on the spiritual life. And Merton paid very little attention to the graveyard when he arrived there in 1941, eager to begin his vocation as a monk. But the graveyard sits there for a reason. Most Benedictine monasteries have a graveyard at the front because that's their way of telling the new monks, this is how you leave us. <laughs> this is the only way you go out is through the graveyard. And they call this the vow of stability. And uh, you don't take it lightly. You have to go as long as seven years before you take the vow. But it's a promise to stay put. And, and it's this idea that I'm going to pitch my tent with these people in this place as long as I can. And that somehow that is good for me spiritually and good for this place. Uh, Kathleen Norris, the great spiritual writer, she said, to commit to stability, this is called the vow of stability, to commit to stability means accepting other people as they are. How dreary to consider that God has given us this family, this spouse, these colleagues on the job, this congregation. Surely we are meant for more important things. Surely our talents will be better appreciated by a more sophisticated crowd. The wisdom of the, of the monastic tradition is, is that there's something very holy making about pitching your tent with one people in one place and staying there. Merton, a brilliant restless thinker, often chaffed at the vow of stability and at times he longed to leave if you read his biography yet he learned to praise his sparse monastic they call them cells for a reason he called them the four walls of my freedom that somehow by committing to these people in this place and not leaving that there was a freedom that was released and he wrote in a, a book called the sign of Jonas he said that when he made a vow of stability the monk renounces the vain hope of wandering off to find a perfect monastery this implies a deep act of faith the recognition that it does not matter much where we are or whom we live stability becomes difficult for a man whose monastic ideal contains some note some element of the extraordinary 
All monasteries are ordinary. Its ordinariness is one of its greatest blessings. You see what he's he's saying there? Now, he could have gone anywhere. He was one of the great minds of the 20th century. He had invitations to go anywhere. He said, it's actually best for me to stay here. Even though I'd like to kill these guys sometimes. (laughs) One of the best books on neighboring I've read is called The Wisdom of Stability by Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove. He says that one of the greatest gifts we can give to a neighborhood is to pitch our tent there and stay. He begins the book, he says, this is a book about staying put and paying attention. In a culture that's characterized by unprecedented mobility and speed, I'm convinced that the most important thing most of us can do to grow spiritually is to stay in the place where we are. Now, he lives in what's called an intentional community, community living in a house in Walltown neighborhood of Durham, North Carolina. It's called the Rutba House. And this is one way to bless a neighborhood, an intentional community. Uh, Maybe some of us will want to do this. Maybe some of you, I know some here tonight have done this in Lonsdale and other communities. You decide we're going to live together in community and, and neighbor together. Michelle Faringo Warren writes in her book, The Power of Proximity, the most profound move you can make to address pain and injustice is to become proximate to it. And one way to do that is to to move into the neighborhood, but it's not the only way. Um, Another way is to just find one little corner of the neighborhood and pitch your tent in it and That, of course, means learning more about the neighborhood first. That's something we're trying to do this year. In August, we're going to spend a little time in each service talking about the schools that serve the children in our neighborhood so we can know what they need and what they're good at and how we might serve them down the road. Uh, Later on, we'll talk a little bit about health care and housing and things like that. A few weeks ago, I I gave you a a list of about 20 nonprofits serving our neighborhood. I asked if you knew any more. You responded with 20 more. And now the list has grown to 40. This fall, Lisa Scott and Matt will be working on curating the the websites of these and posting them on 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 the website for the church. And down the road, maybe one of those nonprofits will be a place where you pitch your tent. Artists are often the prophets of a neighborhood. Artists often sort of know the pain and the promise and dreams of a neighborhood. There might be a particular artist or gallery that you eventually decide to become a patron of. And by the way, we're still trying to discover all the artists working in our community. If that's something you'd like to do, maybe you could start creating a list so that we could just start to know what's there. And let's not forget prayer. One of the reasons monks stay put is so they can pray for the world. We are going to have a lovely chapel. And one of our earliest visions at All Souls was to offer morning and evening prayer for the peace of the city. And if you're an intercessor, Merton would say to you, that too is a work of seeking the peace of the city. It was so interesting. He was living in the 60s. 
and there was all this tumult and he so much wanted to be out in the streets and he wanted to be an activist and, and there's this great book called The Life You, you Lose May Be Your Own where, where it's letters between him and Flannery O'Connor and Walker Percy and he's wrestling with what am I doing in the monastery when the world's on fire and at the end of the day he realized that with his vocation, his calling, intercession was his gift to the world. And that may be your gift, is to, to fill that chapel, to have morning and morning prayer, evening prayer, noon prayer for the city. And we have seen his glory, what he looked like, what God looks like, the beauty of God. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So what does it look like when God moves into a neighborhood, there's a sense in which there's glory, revelation, the beauty of God and expressed in grace and truth. And those both need to be held in tension or we're no longer the, the people of God. Grace, somehow, somehow we need to share grace, unmerited favor and hospitality and non-judgment and acceptance and mercy. All, we need to be that kind of people. But we need to share truth, too. Uh, the Greek word for truth John uses here refers to truth as reality as opposed to an illusion. Many years ago now, there was a, a movie called The Matrix um, where Neo is invited to, he's living in this world of illusion where everybody is, is, uh, don't, doesn't understand that they are living in an illusory reality and he's invited to take a pill and if he takes the pill, he will wake up, come out of the illusion, see the reality and be set free but at the same time have a burden to help others find freedom too and of course, that's what the movie's about. Maybe that's what the gospel is about. Maybe that's what gospel, gospeling is, that, that, that God awakens us to a deeper reality, a hidden reality, the reality of the kingdom that's hidden beneath all the illusion of the age. How on earth do we do this? In our world, there's, everything's an illusion. There's so many realities. How, how possibly do you share the truth, aletheia? How do you share the hidden reality beneath the illusion of the age? Do you hand out books of apologetics? Sometimes you do. My hunch is in the days ahead, that might not be the first, uh, the first thing you do. I think where we come back as we end is, is to the idea of embodiment. How do you reveal the glory of God to a world living in illusion? How do you let our neighbors know there's a deeper hidden reality? Maybe a book, but even better, a body, a people living by a better story, living according to a deeper hidden reality together. Beloved, that's why we come out on a rainy July night. That's why our church must come back together again, places like this, smaller places in your homes. That's why we can't just do it on the phone is because that doesn't reveal the glory of God. The glory of God 
is when sinful people come together and live in love over time in an embodied community and they come out and they do dull things like read ancient texts and come to the table and listen to preachers prattle on and sing old songs and they do it again and again and again and they forgive and they get up and they come back and they don't quit. That reveals the glory of God to an illusory world. And it can't happen on your phone. So please, if you're listening to this online, come back. Unless there's a physical reason, and I understand there are, come back. We must do this as an embodied family. Let's pray. Lord, when we come to the table now, we're, uh, we're, piercing the, we're piercing the illusion. We're taking the pill. And, and we're saying there's another reality deeper than the mall, deeper than politics, deeper than the football schedule, Deeper than, deeper than the market. There's another reality. There's another kingdom. And we enter it through our wounds. We enter it through our impurity and our incompetence. In praying the things, Matt, let us to pray tonight. We enter it needing a shepherd. We come as broken, bleeding people. We come to the table now to be forgiven so that we can forgive. To be reminded that we live in another kingdom. Come and meet us, we pray. In your name, amen.